This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Mai Nardone, author of the story collection, Welcome Me to the Kingdom. Obviously, we all have this working memory that we're drawing from all the time of things that we're going through, but sometimes you are really just making it up. And I think that that people underestimate that. We'll be back with Mai Nardone after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Mai Nardone, author of the short story collection, Welcome Me to the Kingdom. Nardone is a Thai and American writer whose work has appeared in American short fiction, Granta, McSweeney's Quarterly, Plowshares, and elsewhere. He lives in Bangkok. Welcome Me to the Kingdom features short stories set across temples, slums, and gated estates of late 20th century Bangkok, focusing on three families striving to control their destinies in a merciless metropolis. The stories begin in the 1980s when drought has overtaken the countryside and poor farmers are migrating to the city in mass. The reader meets many of the most downtrodden city dwellers, from those trying to make sense of life outside the rural countryside to orphans making their way on the streets, the offspring of a one-time sex worker and her American husband, and a Thai Elvis impersonator. The characters are assaulted with desires to have more, to be more, to change how they look, to do whatever possible to have a good life. The stories in Welcome Me to the Kingdom reveal the class and economic disparities beneath Bangkok's smiling image. We began the discussion with me asking my Nardone this question. So I'm curious of your experience of putting together this collection, Welcome Me to the Kingdom, where it's all really taking place in Bangkok. And I'm curious with sort of this dual mindset that you might have between these two cultures, if writing about Thailand was different at all than how you your lived experience, if, if when you went to write about it, it m- brought you a lens that you don't even necessarily have in your daily life? Yeah, no, I love that question. I mean, one of the things as a as a half Thai, I sort of get to toggle between passing and not passing. And I think this works for language as well. Like when I don't feel like for whatever reason, it's advantageous to speak Thai, then I'll speak English. Um, usually if I'm showing up to somewhere and I'm not dressed appropriately, English is sort of like an immediate ticket into a place that otherwise would have been closed off for kind of class reasons. And I think with fiction, it's kind of the same where I'm in this... Um, it's a really, especially writing as I am in English for an English language audience, um, it's this advantageous space where I get to be a little bit outside of the culture, um, which is kind of how the culture treats, and, and there are stories about this in the book, um, in Thai, the the literal translation of what they call us or, or half kids. Um, and, and a lot of celebrity culture in Thailand is around sort of like half white, half Thai um, people, including um, the the beauty pageants, which are huge out in Southeast Asia. Um, and so I think that, yeah, it's 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 this sort of porous boundary, and I get to cross back and forth, and that is really useful for the fiction. Um, and so I feel like, in some ways, people people give me a pass if I'm entering a space that I'm not familiar with. Um, there's a good example in here about, there's a story about chicken fighting and cockfighting and betting and kind of the whole world around that. And, um, as part of that, my, 
girlfriend is a journalist and but she doesn't speak Thai and so I sort of acted as her fixer and we went up to this farm that is similar to the farm described in the book and I was um out of my depth in, in terms of in terms of sort of like jargon and um even just a lot of the language around you know like sports has a very jargony feel and so um but because I was switching between being fluent in Thai and fluent in English as I was translating, I feel like they were okay explaining to me a lot of things. And I feel like when I'm writing for an English language audience, that's what I'm doing all the time. I am very conscious of like, okay, this is something that's going to need a little more cushion of explanation. Did it make you see the culture differently because you had to, I mean, I, I would think first explain it to yourself in order to write it for Mm -hmm. others. I don't think I've I've necessarily made sense of it, especially writing in English. And this book is already available in Thailand. I know there's some kind of frustration with the English-speaking Thai crowd or the foreign journalists who are perhaps picking up this book that I am not touching enough of the political events. And Thailand is a country with frequent political upheavals, military coups. There's all this taboo around the monarchy. And so some of it was consciously avoiding avoiding certain topics, but at the same time, um, some of it is just these things that were kind of buried in the subconscious. Like um, I knew when I started the book that I wanted to tackle the country's image internationally as this destination for sex tourism, which, as is alluded to in the book, um, it a lot of it stems from the, a lot of the U.S. Army bases that were here in the Vietnam War days. And that image has sort of been perpetuated in Western media and movies like The Beach or like The Hangover 2 or some other ones. There's a Bridget Jones movie that's actually set out here. Um, and so I, I knew kind of that I wanted to take that on. And yet some of the things that I didn't realize until they came up in the stories that were kind of working their way through my subconscious. One example is growing up, and, and I remember talking to my sister about this recently, growing up, we would we would only eat out one one day of the week and it would be Sundays and we would drive from the outskirts into the city to go to this Italian restaurant that my dad liked. Always the same restaurant, always the same route. And I remember being in the back seat and just lying on, on across the back seat, coming back from this restaurant and looking out the window at these huge concrete windowless buildings that had like all these bright lights and these faded posters on the outside of women's faces and not really like understanding what I was seeing. And maybe, you know, I was like five, six, seven. And for years we passed these. And I, I think I kind of acknowledged that they were there before I realized maybe like 10 years later that, oh, these are, um, you know, massage parlors, sex parlors that are catering to, to ties primarily. But that road that we were driving down, which is an unusually wide road, was actually one of the places where a lot of U.S. Army, um, you know, service people were, were stationed. And that's why the road was big because they had to get their trucks up and down it. And there's just this kind of legacy that I was passing all the time, but didn't really realize. So in your collection, Welcome Me to the Kingdom, you have a cast of characters that appear in stories, mostly in advancing time, but not always. So each story has a title, but it also has the name of the individuals that are featured in the story and the year. So you have about nine general characters that you're talking about. 
And I would say what unifies them, I mean, there, there, many of them are linked in different ways that they know each other or intersect with each other in the world that they live in, in Bangkok. Um, and you start off the book with a prologue about the drought. So the reader is grounded in the fact that most of these people probably came to the city from somewhere else. So I want to talk about that, but at first I just want to ask you about the type of character that you were writing about, because almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them were sort of the underclass. They were suffering in some way. They were poor. They were um, migrants from outside of the city. So a little just curious about your interest in this type of Thai individual. Bangkok is... It's a city with a lot of like very obvious inequalities in a way that I feel like American cities or the ones that I've lived in anyways have always been more um, sectioned or cloisters and they're sort of like different enclaves, whether ethnically or otherwise. Um, and if you're in a rich neighborhood, it can really feel like a rich neighborhood, whereas Thailand or Bangkok is always like layered. There's always been. And, and this is one of the stereotypes, like the very glamorous condominium beside a slum or something like that. And, um, and so I knew, I knew from the beginning that one of the things that I wanted to, to get into was, was sort of looking at those inequalities, which are not always often, they're just wealth inequalities. Um, but there's a lot of colorism that goes on in Thailand that made it into the book. And, and there's, um, there's, there's a story about a woman from the Muslim minority in the South and that kind of made it into the book. And so, um, Part of it was trying to make sure that all these different things are represented, all these inequalities, all these peoples from those backgrounds. And then kind of related to that, it was wanting to write about strivers because I feel like, especially with the prologue, it's this opening where it's supposed to be hopeful and a little bit foreboding. And as as people really do, and in Thailand, it's one of these, um, like the distribution of income, the distribution of um, government funding of job opportunity, everything is just like massively concentrated in Bangkok um, in the way that a lot of like middle income countries can be. And so there is this sense that like people are coming towards Bangkok, towards the center of the country. Um, and even as far as dialects and things like that, everyone has to speak central Thai, which is what I speak. Um, but each of the regions or a lot of the regions have their own dialects, some of which are you know, I might understand like 50% of them, but everyone kind of has to adopt to what the the culture in the capital was. And so because the story collection was focused primarily on Bangkok, it was it was about like capturing all that variety. The other reason I sort of have a lot of these characters who are from lower middle classes that are that are striving is because um I had started the collection thinking I would right out from this epicenter, which was the 97 financial crisis, which was um, something that affected the kind of middle to upper class more, including my mom's family. And as I was looking at those ripple effects, um, it started to become apparent like, oh, so this is how, you know, these people who are, who are working in construction, for example, um, would have been affected by this. And one of the remnants of the 97 crisis is that like across Bangkok still, you see these huge concrete buildings that are just kind of skeletons that are too expensive to knock down. But the companies that were building them went bankrupt around 97. And 
they've just remained uncompleted. And, and so it was like thinking about, okay, so what happens when, you know, the people who are working these at the time, where are they going? Um, and then as soon as I, I had some of these characters because they are recurring, then I was just following them backwards and forwards in time and trying to fill in the spaces. So one of the things you say in the very first story, and the first story is about, I guess you could say a wannabe couple, um, two people that came from the South into Bangkok, and the man, P, is really in love with Nam, but she's there ending up finding work, um, sex work, because that's the work that's available. And he's trying as hard as he can to like save her and keep her from that, and she just she just really doesn't accept that from him. She's just kind of maybe uh, succumbed to this inevitable path for herself. And you say in the very beginning, he missed the open country. Back home, you could see where you were going. Here, the city led the way. And you start to describe the alleyways and how just that feeling of absorption that you really understand, especially coming after the prologue when they're talking about the drought and you know they come from the country, you really understand this sense of expansiveness versus a claustrophobia that I could feel in so many of these stories, not just physically, but for the type of things that these people are yearning for, the the wealth, the love, that there is a claustrophobia around so much of this. So just wanted to ask you to talk about that more and if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's a particularly flattering collection for the men <laughs> that are often featured in the in the story. And I, I think that even, even for the characters who are not Thai, there is this kind of like this Thai masculinity of this like traditional streak of wanting to be the ones who are taking care of things. And um and so, so that that first story where where Nam is is the realist in some ways, and she kind of understands the city in the way that P doesn't. But we don't we don't necessarily realize that because we're following we're following P um, through the story. And and Nam in in general, even though her character is the one character that it kind of unites the collection, where she we begin with her and she comes back near the end and she's present throughout. She never has her own story. I, I think of myself when I'm writing as like a, as an imitator, I'm always trying to just figure out what other story writers are doing and then seeing if I can copy it. And then somewhere along the way, like my writing process just subverts like the entire exercise, but I'm already kind of writing and that's sort of how I get started. And so I was thinking about all these stories where, where there's a story that is operating beneath the story that is that the main character who is perhaps a narrator or just the one that we're following around is not aware of. And I thought of like Joyce is the dead, which everyone loves for this reason, where there's a story beneath the story that kind of resurfaces at the end. And so for this story, I was trying to use that structure and kind of like craft this other story onto it. And the claustrophobia is just, it is kind of the mood of the city where everything is, it's, it's interesting. Whenever I'm in the U.S., I'm reminded that, um, old things can be can be really beautiful i know this is like very a mundane thing to say but you know like old like brownstones if you're in new york or something like that whereas everything nothing has really lasted in thailand there isn't good preservation of historical sites and the ones that are preserved are sort of like caught up in the state propaganda and kind of this um, mainstream buddhism that exists and so it it is a city that is 
always building on top of itself. And a part of what happens then, despite zoning regulations and stuff, is it does start to feel claustrophobic. And like, you know, like the New York or New York and London and these cities that were better planned and they built their subways a long time ago. Um, the, the advantage they have over somewhere like Thailand was when we first introduced in the 90s, I guess, um, this mass public transportation, they just built a SkyTrain, but it's really just like a, you know, this huge concrete highway that runs trains throughout the city. And it, you know, it goes, it goes kind of above the road and it can, it, the, the city can at times just feel really claustrophobic. And I was trying to draw attention to that of like P in the story describes himself as feeling trapped and he's coming to this place that he thought was about opportunity and he feels trapped and beneath all of this what's happening at the same time is that Nam is actually finding opportunities. Yeah, I feel in many ways that she was the central character of this entire book. I mean, there are a lot of characters that reappear, but we seem to follow her through a long a longer arc maybe of her life. And mm-hmm. as we said in the first story, she's come from the village and she's kind of forced into this sex work. And then we, we learn, I think in the second story called What You Bargained For, she is ends up with an American man who she marries. His name is Rick. He's from the U.S. And she marries him. And then we see in the third story, we see her getting an abortion, trying to get an abortion. In, it's called Pink Youth, and that's the one where Hasma, who's yeah. Muslim from the South, is giving abortions to these young women. And Hasma herself lost her daughter through some fighting, I guess, with some Buddhist police. And you see kind of the tension between the religions and the tension in her life that's ongoing now because it's illegal what she's doing. And that story, Pink Youth, has kind of um, an amorphous ending, but we kind of learn the ending through the other stories. So, you know, as Nam is trying to get this abortion, we don't know if it actually works. But um, I'm just curious about the trajectory of Nam and putting her into all these situations. And then we can talk more specifics about some of these stories. I knew that I wanted to write about... uh a mixed race relationship with a Thai woman, just because that's like growing up in an international school and in the household that I grew up in. And just because Thailand is a de- destination where, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when the multinationals and stationing people abroad was still kind of more popular. Um, it is this country where a lot of foreign men, often white from wealthier countries come here and they marry Thai women, and there are immediately all those inequalities that I was talking about. There's the wealth inequality, there's often language inequality, there's kind of prejudice on both sides, both like the Western side and the Thai side. And so that that relationship was present from the beginning, and I wanted to, to kind of explore that dynamic. And I knew that um, I also wanted there, as there is, to be another generation. And in, in the in the story collection, they have a daughter, and she kind of takes over some of the stories towards the middle of the collection. Um, and so that that was, it was building Nam's trajectory in that way. And then some of it, um, 
like the abortion story and then one of the stories that comes i think a couple stories later which is about this kind of like spirit medium cult were just these stories that i thought that i wanted to tell and so it made sense to try and thread the needle that i already had which was nam storyline through these different elements um and and so that's that's in some ways like how she ends up at the abortionist which which like you said was the story where it's it's about a, a Muslim woman who provides abortions for people in general, but Thailand is um, nominally a Buddhist majority country. And so there's, there's a lot of history and tension there. And then at the same time, there's um, kind of baked into that. There's still, and, and this, this story takes place, you know, decades ago, but even today when abortion is legal up to a point in Thailand, there's still a lot of like, stigma that people think they're carrying over from the buddhism against abortion so even though it's legal doctors don't often perform it there's a lot of like ways that they discourage women against abortions and the practice is very different from what the law is and so all of that was kind of wrapped up in that story and nam is nam is kind of the vehicle the the, the vehicle that's kind of carrying that storyline forward in time and when you think about a country with so much sex work it's hard to imagine separating that from abortion, which is really what we think when we read the story that brought her to that place and the so many of the women that Hamsa serves. There's this one great magazine called A Day, and they did this one issue that was all about, you know, it was called The Sex Issue, but they had kind of a radio component to it, and they were interviewing these women that work in NGOs. This is contemporary, but... and kind of their experiences in these NGOs, helping out sex workers, legalization, all these different issues. And one of the things that they kept coming back to again and again was that, of course, it's an opportunity thing. Like a lot of people come in because there is money in it. And th th these are the women who, who are choosing to go into sex work. But one of the big reasons also is that it's a lot of women who have children that they cannot support and they've been left by the father. Um, and so they're coming into this work in order to provide for children who are often with the parents who are often in the countryside. And it's, it's such a common story to it's, you know, it's been, Thailand has this band Carabao that's kind of like, um, it's sort of like Bruce Springsteen, but if Bruce Springsteen had kind of an industry around him, like they made a TV series back in the day that was based on different songs because they're folk songs and they're very story oriented. And um, I like to think that, almost nothing that I've written, at least maybe up until like the 2010 range in, in the, in the timeline of the story collection has not been a story in this band's sort of like repertoire where they've already told the story. And so it's, it's such a common occurrence that it's, um, yeah, that it's made it into pop culture. And so inevitably it would be these women who are coming to the abortionist or these women who are getting pregnant if they're coming to the abortionist at all. In that story, Pink Youth, I think it's the first time that we start to see kind of the spirit world. We see ghosts. Um, Hamsa sees ghosts of her daughter. She sees ghosts of these babies. She um, has this kind of connection to this other world, that, I guess the world of the dead, but there's also more energy than just that. And then you see that repeating back. You mentioned this this story called Parade, where it's like a cult-like 
you know, thing that Nam is taking her daughter to. And we can talk about that story specifically, but I'm also curious about the presence of, of ghosts and spirits. Yeah, that that's something else that it felt like it would be really disingenuous to write. Well, I, 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 I can't even say it's necessarily a class thing because it's, it's pervasive, whatever class. And Thailand is like this melting pot of, and, and I guess it's just historical forces, but this melting pot of religions. And so when I was growing up and going to these Buddhist temples, I never really realized it, but because I thought they were just, you know, Thai Buddhist deities or something, but you'll often see Ganesh, who of course comes from Hinduism. And in fact, Thailand's epic myth um, is just the Ramayana appropriated and it's called the Ramakian, but it's all the same characters and a lot of the, the deities have been renamed. And so there's a lot of like, this Hindu influence at the same time. And my mom's family is Thai, is Thai Chinese. Her parents were both born in China. There's, um, you'll see Guan Yin, which is a, a Chinese deity. Um, and so it it is this country just with like a lot going on spiritually and and belief systems. There's, there's not always a clear... Um, the, the rules aren't always very clear, I guess. I mean, in, in like mainstream Buddhism, often the rules are very clear, but there's just a lot of like muddiness around the side. If you're in a super rich family, especially with the business families, they'll often have like a family fortune teller. And this fortune teller will do the entire family. You know, it'll do the kids, it'll do the business decisions, it'll like everything. And then at the other end, there's just a lot of betting around lottery tickets, which um, is also kind of this nationally consuming um, activity. And um, even I remember my mom and I, maybe uh, five years ago, six years ago, we did kind of like a, a pilgrimage to these temples that she wanted to go to in the north. And we were on the way back at one point. And um, I was talking to the, we had like rented this minivan with some other people. And I was talking to the bus driver and he looked really tired. And I was like, you know, how are you doing? You look really tired. And he's like, oh yeah, I couldn't sleep all night because this ghost was like, he was like, I was, I was afraid of this ghost coming to haunt me. And so I just stayed awake all night. And I was like, it's like a 12 hour drive, you know, back down the country. And then along this route, we stop at this other temple and a monk there. And it's this very out of the way, not well-funded temple or whatever. Um, we're there at this temple. And this monk is telling me that we can't get back on the road because there's a you know, there's going to be an accident in the city that we're passing through related to these force fields that these trucks are going to run into. And therefore, we should stay with him and walk figure eights in his parking lot while he points out with the laser pointer all the angels that are flying across the night sky. And I'm looking up and there are these, you know, like satellites right, just just crossing the sky that he's like pointing to with, and they're moving at constant speed um, that he's pointing to with his laser pointer. And the whole time I'm thinking, the bus driver hasn't slept because he was afraid of being haunted all night. And, and whenever somebody says something like this, there's not, there's no questioning it. People just sort of absorb it, whether they believe it or not. And so that I felt like had to be represented. We see part of this ritual in that story parade. So basically because we read pink youth and we know that she goes to have this abortion but it doesn't work out because we see later that she has a child born that I think Nam feels is is cursed some way because she was born the wrong way or she wasn't supposed to be born. And her name is Lara. 
So Lara is the daughter of Nam and Rick. And Nam takes her to this sort of cult group for kids that kind of all have something wrong with them. And they do kind of spiritual exercises and they have someone there sort of, I don't know if they're like exercising them or blessing them or there's things going on with these kids. But the message that Lara has is like, you were an unwanted baby and that I can, you know, that she can't ever really be exercised from her mom's life. So this thing that her mom was maybe trying to take her to, to make things better only puts the original like huge division between them for the rest of the book and the rest of their life. And meanwhile, the father is off to the side, very absent, which was his role. So just curious about your original impetus for this story and how you wanted it to kind of get created on the page. Yeah. um, This is definitely the story that was the hardest and even, you know, talk, whoever read this, whether it was my agents in that period or my editor, everyone doesn't really know what to do with the story. And there isn't, you know, there's there's no nice resolution. The sort of the the spirit parts that are involved are kind of unclear. But I, I just think, and, and some of this comes from personal experience of just being sort of around people when I was young enough just to be afraid and not really questioning things. And yeah, just being present in these spaces of like people channeling spirits and channeling in some ways, I'm not even sure because the rules of the game would often change, but like often it's dead monks who are coming back into these other people. And it's about blessings. It's about wisdom. And it's representative, I think, even though that's sort of an extreme example of, of time mainstream Buddhism, it is representative of this kind of like karmic game that everyone is forced to play here where everything that you do is bad is you know points off on the karma scale and everything that you do is good is extra points and you're trying to rack up all the points so that you can break the cycle or if not you can end up in one of these tiers of heaven that's better and it's you know the system is is gendered and there's there's all this kind of stuff that's wrong with it but um I was just trying to like capture a lot of that aspect and bring it to this child who's kind of young enough, Lara, that who's we're following in a close third in the story, who's she's young enough that we're she's still like hopeful about the process and she still wants to believe and she does want to believe in kind of redemption and that she's gonna get it out of this group and um and that these adults are channeling these these spirits that are gonna cure her of whatever it is. Um and she's just at that kind of, and often it's it's the children who are interacting in the same way in the in the previous story, um, Pink Youth. It's it's the children who are kind of more engaged with the spiritual world, and part of it is a gullibility that you know this just an inclination towards belief that you have as a as a child, or at least that I had. For Lara, her trajectory for her life um, really turned out quite sad. She, you know, had this privileged background where she had this, I mean, they weren't, they were never wealthy, but her dad, um, you know, came from the West and had a different sensibility and they insisted on sending her to this international school. So I guess there's some maybe judgment there that that is better, 
But she ended up just so, I guess, sad and lonely and detached from both her parents because her father eventually goes back to the U.S. and she's detached from her mother, from all of this stuff from her childhood. And she um, is really kind of more like one of these street people at the end with just down on her luck and not really um, having opportunities to grow in advance. Yeah, her trajectory, I mean, a lot of a lot of what she and she sort of is starting to learn it in this this cult. Um, but that she comes to later is she's absorbing what is in the culture and what it took me years to sort of figure out as, as well. It was like this shame around being a half child, especially in a country with a big sex tourism industry. And so there's this assumption of like, oh, you know, your parents were were sex workers and even um or your mother was a sex worker as is often the case because it's a western father and even though that's totally um far from my own experience and my mom and there's really nothing wrong with that situation either but growing up i felt like i was internalizing a lot of the shame around that and even my mom even though she doesn't talk about it in these terms um and she, I mean, she does have these anecdotes from early days of her marriage with my dad, where she would be waiting for him in a hotel lobby and somebody, you know, the hotel staff would come by and tell her that she can't come and make a living around here or something like that. Um, they were once stopped from getting into an elevator at a different hotel because you weren't allowed to bring women back to your hotel. And my dad had to be like, this is my wife. There's just a lot of that in the culture. And I think that for my mom, who's unusually kind of like, Western educated. And so she speaks English with a pretty American accent. And she's lived abroad at this point for half her life or more than that. I only realized much later that she also kind of code switches. And when it's convenient to her to pretend to be, for example, Singaporean or just foreign in general, she'll do it. Um, And she'll speak English instead of Thai because she feels like she doesn't get the right treatment in Thai and she gets looked down on in Thai. And as soon as you are speaking Thai, they kind of like fit you into the class system of like, it. it is this very, you know, it like famously uh, Thai people will take out a lot of debt to buy really expensive cars and spend money on cars instead of their homes and live very simply. And it's because most people don't entertain at home, but they drive their car everywhere. They drive their car to the restaurants. And so, um, and that, that kind of like having to show face is is pervasive. And so it's like what you're wearing, what kind of purse you're carrying, what kind of phone you're using, which I think is just commonplace in in Southeast and East Asia nowadays. But um, so to get back to Lara on this, um, a lot of it was just kind of her having internalized this feeling and some sort of shame around it that she wasn't sure where it's coming from. And reflecting it back onto her parents and trying to kind of work through that and figure out who she is over the course of the collection. And that's kind of why, like, at some point she falls in with these other half kids who are part of like the celebrity and modeling industry, which is especially in the younger, um, the younger celebrities are so many of them are half white. Um, and so she kind of falls into that culture and it's like an exploration of, of some of those themes like skin whitening in Thailand, which um, like a lot of Asia is very common and skin whitening creams and skin whitening serums and stuff like that. And um, 
and often, you know, you'll be on a the SkyTrain or wherever in a mall and the models who are advertising skin whitening products are themselves half white and therefore not representative of the general population at all. Um, and they're selling these products onto people who don't necessarily look like them. Um, yeah. And, and even like famously recent years, all the Miss Universes from Thailand, which is a huge deal out here, um, have been half Swiss, half Thai. Um, and nowadays it's as if like even the women who are not half Swiss are having plastic surgery so that they look like these half Swiss women who have been um, contestants in the past. And so, yeah. And she's, she's just sort of like going through the different stages of what it looks like to be, to be half white in Thailand and trying to figure it out. When you were younger and felt this, were you able to articulate it to your sister or your parents? And did you talk about it? Or is it something that you really only found the words for later? I I definitely only found the words for them later. As, as, a, as a male, as a guy, I also have it very different. My sister's older than me. And she did at one point, um, you know, go in for, um, I don't know what they call it, but, you know, when you when you do a bunch of shots in the studio so that they can call you to be, to be a model or something. And she's there. I remember, cause I just went with her for fun and she's there with like a yogurt, you know, drink juice box or something like that. And people are taking photos of her and it's primarily because she is half white and that's kind of what the modeling industry expected. Um, on the shame side, it's definitely not something that I, saw at the time but i have two half brothers from my my dad's um remarriage who are about a decade younger than me so i sort of got to see them growing up and kind of going through it and and i was already at the time in my 20s my early 20s i guess and sort of um yeah seeing some of it in them but at the same time the environment that they're growing up in is so different with like the dominant culture out here is now Korean. And so a lot of the tastes and the fads and the the trends that people are chasing are, are different from what they were like in, in the 90s. So do you feel that writing this, because it did focus on so many characters who were half white, half Thai, gave you deeper understandings that you never would have had if you hadn't written this book? Yeah, I think I think part of it definitely started in the writing process writing is you know accidentally reflective because you'll you'll write and you'll uncover i mean this is usually when it's working well when it's not working well it's not like this but when it's working well you'll you'll just find moments of inspiration creativity whatever you want to call it where something comes up and you're not quite sure where it came from but that's what you were sitting at the keyboard waiting for all along and um yeah and so i think that some of it is intentional. Some of it is not intentional. And then I'm kind of like learning from my characters as, as I'm writing them into the stories and being like, Oh, okay, this is how this fits in. And then at the same time, this is why um, I don't write like none of the kind of the family dynamic and even the um, what happens um, with Laura's family in 1997 none of that is kind of representative of what my family went through at all. And so I don't write um, from experience as far as like what's happening, you know, plot points, what the characters are going through, but definitely the emotions, definitely the feelings, some of that is, it's just the subconscious bubbling up. 
Did your parents read it? Um, yeah, <laughs> they did. I don't think they recognize themselves in the characters at all, which is good. There is one character that everyone recognizes as my grandfather, my mother's father, who's a Thai Chinese man. Um, he's in one of the earlier stories. And it's, again, one of those... I, I think that people like to draw associations where there a lot of the times they underestimate like how much of it is just coming out of nowhere, I guess. And I remember when I started writing and I, in college, I was an economics major, so it's not even kind of on this track, but um, a lot of people who are not a, of the writing world would tell me like, Oh, that's so interesting. I'm not creative enough to be a writer. And at the time I thought like creativity has nothing to do with it. Right. It's, it's craft. It's, it's nuts and bolts. It's like learning how other people are doing it and trying to tell a story and it's narrative and it's voice. Um, and only later, and even in the MFA, I feel like this was not necessarily a topic, but I was in the seminar class and um, we were reading Saul Bellow and it was this short seminar that James Wood came and taught at the Columbia MFA. And I think he describes this in one of his essays about this book as well, Seize the Day. And he's just describing like the way that Bellow is describing somebody's elbow i think that was in a jacket i don't remember the precise description but i just remember james wood sort of saying like you know at this moment it's it's sort of a perfect description and you can imagine saul bellow closing his eyes and trying to figure out like what that would feel like and for me that was when something clicked when i was thinking about it and i was like yeah so much of this a lot of this is not coming out of lived experience. And obviously we all have this working memory that we're drawing from all the time of things that we're going to, but going through, but sometimes, um, sometimes you are really just making it up. And I think that, that people underestimate that. I think that's, what's so amazing and beautiful about fiction, especially, but all writing in general, nonfiction poetry too, is that, and you mentioned this earlier, like you are getting to these emotional truths, but you can put those emotional truths in many different clothes, right? You can put it in this half American, half Thai girl. You can put it in the Chinese grandfather. You can put it in the street boys, which we can talk about in a minute. But that mm -hmm. um, because our human experience, no matter what the outside world brings us, like our experience maybe to feel like love and joy and pain and sorrow is maybe more universal. Um, that's what's so beautiful about this endeavor. Yeah. I love the way that you describe that. Yeah. I always think it must be intense for parents to read their kids work because even if these aren't <laughs> your, your parents they're they are being revealed to, uh, they are like sort of being exposed to some of the emotional truth that you're expressing on the page, whether you feel that or you just want to imbue it in your characters. There's still like kind of a vulnerability there, I think, especially for people who know you, even if none of the stories are about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. And my, my older sister is also a writer, also a fiction writer. Um, my dad once quips that um, between two fiction writers, he's going to have one hell of an obituary. So. <laughs> So I just mentioned, and we haven't talked about these two characters, but you have these two characters, Tintin and Benz, and we see them also um, mature into adulthood. They're, when we first meet them, they're kind of street boys, but they're not exactly in an orphanage, but sort of in a, in a house that takes care of them, at least at night. 
and they're living on the street and they're trying to take things from the flood, like find things that they can sell and make money for. And then we see them at the very last story where they're working on this sort of volunteer ambulance service where they go to accidents and they, if they bring people alive to the hospital, they get a commission. And if they're dead, they don't get money, but they can bring them to the crematorium. And there's kind of a, a repeated thing in there, which is do good, save yourselves. And they are Buddhists and, and thinking that there's some karmic points for doing this work, but they also do, especially Tintin and have done throughout their life, plenty of, more mischievous, nefarious things. Mm -hmm. So just curious about the origin of this story, the Tumboon Brigade, and also um, ending the collection with this. So their kind of friendship, it really grew out of the first story where, where we see them as children and this kind of informal family, which does exist for a lot of them. for a lot of Thai kids who are from like the slum or very poor families where, um, and, and often, yeah, they have these kind of adopted communities that are helping them out. And so it might be a shared home. And, um, as is the case with these boys and there's an expectation that when they grow up, they're going to pay back into something. Um, a lot of them are around sports like Muay Thai, Thai boxing, um, has this culture about it where it takes in a lot of like young boys and then it trains them up within these houses and then gets them to earn money through the boxing. And so that was kind of the origin of of their friendship. And then they, we follow them through the collection. Um, And when I was talking to my agents about this, we felt like this was sort of the best place to end the collection just because, um, unlike a lot of the other storylines, this storyline has been primarily just these two characters. It hasn't been, you know, one or the other, or it hasn't had other characters come into it as much. And, um, and I had the story that I wanted to write about this real, um, yeah, these real volunteer brigades that are on the streets of Bangkok. Nowadays, the story is set maybe around 2010. Um, nowadays it's better regulated, but even back then, and then, for, you know, the 30 years previous to that. Um, that is how they operated. Just families, whoever it was, you know, celebrities would do it. They would just pile into a car at night. They'd go wait under a highway somewhere, sometimes with training, sometimes without training, sometimes with um, the right gear and sometimes not. And um, in the early days, they were seen as corpse carriers because that's often what they were doing. And Thailand has one of the highest road fatality rates in the world and it's often motorbike accidents um and so all over the city you'll see these pickup trucks um these informal ambulances just like waiting to be called in across various radio networks to these accident scenes and because they're they're pretty spread out they're often the first people there um, before like a proper ambulance which you don't see as much um because they rely on this informal network and so it was this um this phenomenon that I that I felt like was interesting and it kind of made sense for these two characters who throughout the collection they've always been strivers and they've sort of been held down by the system. And it felt disingenuous necessarily to to kind of to give them success when Bangkok is also hugely unequal. I mean, a few years ago we also topped the world's like most unequal 
um, ranking by some coefficient. And um, it, it felt disingenuous to kind of like give them the success that they wanted just because often people don't have it. And there is a lot of stasis around the class and, and wealth in Thailand. And so um, instead it was, you know, they've, they've tried everything else. Chicken, uh, Tintin, for example, has tried betting on fighting chickens and they've gone through all these various stages. And so they're at this stage where they've sort of like accepted their lot, but they're trying to do the common thing, which is like often, um, often, and I, and I feel like the, it's a little bit like mainstream Buddhism. It's a little bit the monarchy. They have these sort of crowd control mechanisms, population control mechanisms where things like Buddhism will be used to explain things away. And so if you have, you know, a bad lot in life, if you're poor and if everything is hard, then clearly you've done something in your past or one of your previous lives um, to land you in this position. And the same with people who are wealthy. It's like, oh, they've clearly accrued the correct amount of karma or merit from previous lives. And that's why they're so lucky and fortunate in this life. And so one of the mediums, or I guess there are two main mediums that are often like pushed onto people through pop culture, through TV. Um, and it's the lottery, the state lottery. It's the only one in Thailand and, um, and Buddhism and like making merit at the temples. And so for these guys, they've already kind of tried the lottery and here they are trying to accrue points towards their next life. Um, yeah. And it's also kind of like a breaking point for their friendship. Um, it it feels i think to ben's like tintin has sort of dragged him through a lot of things that he wouldn't otherwise have gone have wanted to go through and so he's he's finally at a breaking point with him and um and there was just this kind of i think this is what my my agents liked about it this kind of like elegiac ending because it ends with this radio call and um um yeah they just felt like it was a more powerful a more um in the in the end of the story it kind of like opens out instead of narrowing in as well if that makes sense like it it feels like it's going back towards the prologue which was about like the city at large and as being bigger than these these individual characters um and so i think that's why we decided to end with that story i wanted to ask you about you know your approach to endings in general many of your endings i think without being too overly exaggerated because not every single one is like this and it's a big word, but a lot of them tend towards the sublime. Like they tend to move towards that moment in the story or like an opening. Um, and I'm just curious, like how you approach endings or what you want them to accomplish. I'm not sure. And I, I still, I'm trying to write a novel now and I have no idea how to end it. I don't know how endings work. I love beginnings. I have like all sorts of examples of, um, of beginnings of short stories that I like, but as far as endings, there, there are just sort of a few short stories, um, that come to mind. And one of them, which also happens to be, um, one of my mom's favorite short stories is the, the JD Salinger story. Oh, no, I forgot the name. It's the one that ends his story collection um, about the boy who is sort of prophetic. Um, I can't remember what it's called anymore. I think it's his name is the name of the story. But um, 
but it 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 does have this end that kind of opens towards opportunities um and yeah i wish i wish i knew better how to how to end stories or like where to go with with endings in general um but i know i know that i don't like i don't like the cliche new yorker story ending that you know people used to joke about but i think is mostly disappeared now of just kind of ending abruptly it feels incomplete in some ways even though the the briefness of the form is like suited to a abrupt ending it's yeah it's never sat well with me um but i'm still trying to learn how to how to finish things can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer yeah so i picked um I picked *The Quick and the Dead* by Joy Williams in this passage, and when I when I think about sort of the um, the subconscious or kind of like just the strange bubbling up when you're writing and you're not really sure where it comes from, but you're just going with it. I feel like, and and obviously this is this is manufactured perhaps, but I feel like Joy Williams just channels that in like a raw, unfiltered way throughout a lot of her work or more, I guess, her novels, her stories are a little neater. Um, and so this, this section from the quick and the dead is towards the end where one of the characters, Corvus is, who's a, who's a teenage girl has decided to go into this, um, to go work at this hospice. And there's this kind of nurse, nurse Daisy, who's a, a figure that is, who is quite like death and is, um, ushering her into this world of like, not quite living and not quite dead, which is what the book is about. It costs more to make pennies than they're worth, but the utterly useless exerts a sobering restraint upon society. If I have a pension for anything, I believe it's for useless things. The aide pressed fresh sheeting onto the bed and steered the carton into the hall with her foot. In the quiet, Nurse Daisy's breathing seemed to hiss a little. Each room a palimpsest, she said. I'm self-obliged to tell you this place may not always be here for you. It's under investigation by the state. It's not just the dog meat, the trifecta, tostadas it's a number of things across the board records aren't being kept bums aren't being scoured properly rat tails have been observed in the darndest places thus the exterminator's eventful arrival as for the doctors they're comically unqualified indeed they're not even doctors not even vets they're handymen gardeners death was once frequently portrayed as a gardener in serious verse one of the problems with our technological age is that we can't picture death as a gardener anymore or picture it as anything. A straight line on the screen is the best we can do. Do you want to say any more about that? I just love that it feels like, and and this this is part of a lo- lo- longer monologue that Nurse Daisy is giving to this um, other character, Corvus, in order to shock her into speaking almost. And Corvus stays mute through a lot of it. And actually, it's it's something that I used for one of the stories in the collection that is just a monologue without another character on the other end. And I just, I love the feeling that Troy Williams is just riffing. She's just like writing in this sort of word association manner. Um, Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, I'm reading from Like Us for Whiter You, which is about sort of the half-kid culture. And um, yeah, um, it's it's first person from the character Lara. Even though we're both Ukrung, I'm dark beside her. Hers is a color I know well from the billboards that make a rat maze of our city. Stella modeling this yogurt drink or that instant noodle. 
Mostly, though, it's whitening creams. Her latest, a Skytrain spread, shows Stella as one of 20 winking women, their portraits cobbled together to form a palette grid. White peach is the darkest on their skin gradient. Stella's color they call mascarpone, as if natives know what the hell that is. Now they think it's a skin tone, just two squares off porcelain. Even when it's not Stella up there, it's her I see, showcasing a push-up bra or the latest lace thing from Seoul. Stella's body, you could strum the lines of it. Yoga, she tells me always. Like hell yoga, I don't say. Just like I don't look at the pea stamp pill she slips under her tongue before a meal. What she calls her supplements. And what Bird, during Stella's 10 minutes in a toilet stall, calls puke pills. But that's also false, because it all comes out her ass. Picture that on your palate. Do you want to share why you chose that? I just had such a hard time with the tone as a story. I wanted it to be sort of condescending. This is when the character Lara has involved herself in in these other half-white models, celebrities, and, and there's just this condescension on sort of like the common person. And I had, you know, the story actually existed in a previous version of which only the first two paragraphs survived in this version and the rest of it was rewritten but i just it was either too condescending or it was too didactic and it felt like um i was trying to explain something skin whitening that doesn't exist as much in the u.s and just how pervasive it is when you're going through the city i once sort of um photographed it and put it on twitter when i was going commuting to work at the time and how many posters and advertisements for skin whitening products I would see on like a 40 minute commute. Where do you write? I write in on a desk in my bedroom. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I play badminton with embarrassing seriousness. Outside? Indoors, um, which is even worse. (laughs) Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Recently, it's been my agents, Rob and Max. How have you dealt with rejection? Poorly, but I think I'm getting better as I'm, it helps to be on this side of the world where it just feels like I'm far from the industry, I'm far from career success, and I'm just just kind of writing out here. And I mean, I, I don't even tell a lot of my friends out here that I'm a writer, and so um, I just feel insulated from a lot of it. And what is your favorite word? I find myself using the word cleave a lot. And I like that it means both to split and also to kind of adhere to or to stick fast to. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative for this conversation. Thank you for having me and your, your really thoughtful questions. If you like today's show with my Nardone, author of the collection, Welcome Me to the Kingdom, check out my interview with Jamil Jan Kochai on his collection, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories, which just won the Aspen Literary Prize. We talked about Afghanistan, writing family history, the after effects of violence, and going to scary places in his writing. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. You can support First Draft on a monthly or annual basis. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and send some 10th year anniversary love. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Stephen Burrow, and Curtis Sittenfeld. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.